Okay, well, I hardly need to tell you this, but we live in a politically divided nation. Yes? You think so? Do I need to tell you that? I think we're good. No, we're good. We have a, a polarizing president, which many love and adore and almost see him as a messiah for our country, making America great again. Many others hate and despise that very same man, um, viewing him as sort of an antichrist who must be resisted at all costs. Never Trumpers is the name of that movement. Our division goes beyond our, our president, however, it goes to Congress. Um, you guys know like what, the, what progress means, right? And what pro means, right? And you guys know what con means, right? So Congress is really what we have there. We have gridlock, Republicans holding the House, Democrats holding the, the Senate. And these two political parties, like hardly ever, work together. In fact, they refuse to work together. Democrats refuse to work with Republicans. Republicans refuse to work with Democrats. It's as bad as it's ever been. Uh, Zachary Neal, Associate Professor of Psychology and Global Urban, Urban Studies at Michigan State University, studied the political divide in our country, and, and he did so by looking at the political networks of every U.S. senator and every representative since 1973, and he looked forth at the bills that they put forth and who was co-sponsoring those bills, and so forming like this network of who worked together in, uh, in the Senate and in the Congress. And one of the things he noticed is that in the 1970s and 1980s, Democrats mostly worked with Democrats, Republicans mostly worked with Republicans, but there were times when they crossed the aisle and worked together to pass some important legislation. And, and during those days, it was us and them. Each party would view it's us and then it's them. Um, but since 1990s, he's noticed an ever-decreasing willingness to cross the aisle. And, and to make matters worse, it's the Democrats and Republicans are attacking each other furthering that divide and division. And so today, we don't have an us and them. We have an us versus them mentality. Democrats, Republicans, hardly ever work together. Dare I say never. Zachary Neal concludes this. He says, what I found is that polarization has been steadily getting worse since the early 1970s. And today, we've hit the ceiling on polarization. At these levels, it would be difficult to make any progress on social or economic policies. And this division in our leadership of our country has created division among people. There's been debate. With the advent of social media especially, there's been more debate than ever before as people put up their, their slogans or their signs and they're just talking at each other and arguing with one another. And it, it's really only right that both sides go back and forth because we are a free nation and we feel passionately about our, our issues and our country and, and our future. My aim this morning isn't to resolve all those issues. Those are for another day, probably in private. Today, we're, we're looking at the scriptures, obviously, of course. But I want to help give you a perspective of that divide and just how it is that we relate to our leaders in the government. And how is it we conduct ourselves during this time of, of polarization? How do we conduct ourselves with those above us? And how do we conduct ourselves with other people during this climate of division in our country. And this perspective comes from Romans 13, 
where Paul puts forth a Christian perspective of government. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them there to Romans chapter 13. Romans 13, 5 through 7 is, is our text. If you didn't bring a Bible, the Pew Bible is on page 948. You can find it there. Our text begins in verse 5, but really the thought begins in verse 1. I mean, you can see that in verse 5. Verse 5 begins with this word, therefore. That is a conclusion of the first four verses. Right? Therefore, this is the conclusion. And furthermore, you, you can see that the command is this. Therefore, one must be in subjection. That's the same command given in verse 1. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. So there's be in subjection, verse 1. Verse 5, be in subjection. It's the main idea of the passage. It's repeated twice. It is the conclusion in verse 5 of everything 1 through 4. And so it, it, it's appropriate for us. It's appropriate for me to title my message this morning, Submit to Authorities. Remember my message was last week entitled? Submit to Authorities. And today it's Submit to Authorities Part 2 because it is the, the second part of the same thing. It's appropriate then for us to, re, to review Verses 1 through 4, let's just read them together. It says, let every person, this is verse 1, be subject to the governing authorities. For there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what's good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God and avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And if you remember, these words come from the context of chapter 12, where Paul repeatedly tells those in Rome to overcome evil with good. Right? When evil comes your way, don't don't repay evil for evil, but repay evil for evil. With good, chapter 12, verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Overcome the evils of persecution with the goodness of blessing. Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what's honorable in the sight of all. Right? Overcome evil by doing the honorable thing. When someone does evil to you, you do the honorable thing towards them. Verse 19 of chapter 12. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Right? You overcome evil done against you by leaving it alone and letting God be God and letting God pour out the vengeance. He says in verse 20, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. If he, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals in his head. Right? You overcome the evil of your enemies towards you by doing good to them, feeding them, and giving them drink. Of course, Chapter 12, verse 21, do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. And the, and the question comes blaring out at us, what about justice? If we're just supposed to, to leave it to God or always do good, what, what, about, what about that justice that repays the wrong? And that's what chapter 13 is about. And Paul says it's the government. It's the government that is, verse 4, God's servant to execute justice. The government is the one who avenges the wrongs. So if wrongs done to you, don't take personal revenge. Bring it to the authorities and let them sort it out. Now in Romans 13, 1 through 4, there are four principles we looked at last week. Submit to government authorities because God establishes the authority. Verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for 
There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been established and instituted by God. The authorities in your life, whether it's your parents or whether it's your teachers or whether it's your boss or your mayor or your president, they all have been put there and placed there by God himself. Acts 17, 26 says, God determines the times and boundaries of our habitation. It's no accident you're living in Rockford. It's no accident, children, you're in your family that you're in. It's no accident, parents, you were brought into the family where you are. The authorities in our lives are no accident. That means that resisting authority is resisting God. If God's brought the authority in our life, to resist that authority is to resist God. That's exactly what verse 2 says. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. So if you're resisting the ones that God has placed in authority over you, you basically you are resisting God and you will face the judgment for that. So it's far better to submit because we see there in verse 3 that submitting to authority brings blessing. Rulers are not a terror for good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do its good and you'll receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. God has established the government's authorities for good. If we submit to them, good will come to us. But resisting authority brings wrath. Verse 4. But if you do what is wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he's the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. If you do wrong, the governmental authorities will make you pay for the consequences. If the wrong is little you'll pay little. If the wrong is great, you'll pay great. If you're late in returning your library fee, the sweet little lady at the the library desk will charge you 10 cents a day. But if you steal a car, the police will come and you'll be in jail for weeks. It's justice. It's the government that gives us the justice. And that's why Paul begins, verse 5, therefore one must be in subjection because God establishes the authority Resisting authority is resisting God. Submitting to authority brings blessing, and resisting authority brings wrath. Therefore, we must be in subjection. Now, in verse 5, he's going to continue to show us why we ought to submit to authority. And he gives us here reasons to submit. He gives us two reasons in verse 5. The first has to do with God's wrath, and the second with our conscience. Let's look here at the first one. The first refers to God's wrath to the punishment that comes our way if we do, if we disobey. I trust you can see it right there in verse 5. Therefore, one must be in in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Let's look at this first one, right? Not only for the sake of wrath. That's everything that verses 1 through 4 are talking about. It's just the vengeance that God will bring upon those who disobey authority. Man, we spent an entire message last week looking at this. I've just reviewed it for you quickly right here. I, I don't feel like we need to delve into that anymore except go straight to application. Really just say, are, are you re- submitting to authorities in your life? Children, are you obeying your parents? Students, are you obeying your teachers? Parents, are you obeying the government? Everyone, all of us. God is the ultimate authority. Are we obeying the Lord? Just think maybe now, just, are there areas in your life where you're, you're not submitting? I just trust maybe God will bring that to mind. Maybe a little area, maybe a big area. And just know that God's wrath may come. It's what verse 5 says. We, we should um, be in subjection to, 
to avoid God's wrath. And God's wrath comes through the hand of others in some way, somehow, mysteriously. He, he takes care of it. With children, it may come through the hand of spanking. With students, it may come through poor grades. With employees, it may come through firing. With citizens, it may come with fines or imprisonment. But ultimately, you bring it up. What, what, is, what is it that we pay if we resist our highest authority? The Lord Himself. And He'll bring condemnation. That is ultimate reference to God's wrath. Now, in Romans, of course, he hasn't referred, he hasn't shied away from referring to God's wrath. He says in Romans chapter 1, 18, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Or to use the language of Romans 13, it's the wrath of God has come upon all who are disobedient to God and the authorities which he has set in place. And truth be told, we've all disobeyed the Lord. We've all Refuse to submit to the ultimate authority in our life. And that's where the gospel comes in. For Paul's eager to preach the gospel. right? For just as God's wrath is, is upon the ungodly and the unrighteous, God's grace is upon those who believe in Jesus. Over in chapter 3, verse 21, we see the contrast. 118, the wrath of God's revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men. But now, verse 21 of chapter 3, the righteousness of God has been revealed. And this is apart from the law. This is not through the law. This is apart from the law. And apart from the law means through Jesus, what he has done on the cross for us. He's the just and the justifier, the one who has faith in Jesus. So we get our righteousness, not through the law, but through faith that is in Jesus. Verse 22, the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe to escape the wrath of God upon our lives for our disobedience. We simply need to believe and trust In Jesus, that's the greatness of the gospel. Just submit our lives to the Lord. And God, by his grace, forgives us totally by his grace. And he changes us and gives us desires and passions then to pursue the Lord. And that's what his second point is here about, right? Another reason why he gives us to submit to the authorities. First is for God's wrath, not only that we might avoid God's wrath, he says, but second, but also for the sake of conscience. You may just read that, just kind of say, huh, conscience. Okay, well, how, how does that relate? And I love James Montgomery Boyce's observation. When he compares this, where Paul says, also for the sake of conscience, he goes back to the creation count. And he says, remember in, um, I, th- I think it was the, the fourth, fourth day of creation, third day of creation, he made the sun, moon, and stars, fourth day. He made the sun, moon, and star. You remember that? And he says, he made the sun, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to, to govern the night. And he made the stars also. It's kind of like all this about making the sun and the moon. And then, oh yeah, he just made the stars also. And like, you know anything about the stars. It's just unbelievable. Like how far out they are, how many there are. And just, oh yeah, I made the stars. And so likewise here also for the sake of conscience. Just kind of like this little thing that like is huge. Boy says this, conscience is not a small thing of little importance, but rather a large thing and of great importance. Conscience involves our sense of what's right and wrong. And even more importantly, our awareness that we ought to do what's right. In other words, when Paul speaks of conscience, as he does here, he suddenly lifts the discussion of submission to the governing authorities 
from what we might call mere pragmatic level to the highest possible plane. For now, instead of saying, you should obey the state because you'll get in trouble if you don't. He says, you should obey the state because it's the right thing to do. And you know that you should do what is right. For the sake of conscience. And this is, this is where, where God puts in our heart just what is right and what is wrong. And so we appeal to this, this greater sense of how it is that we should submit. In other words, right, when dealing with authorities, we don't just deal for, with them for fear of consequences. We don't walk in, in fear and dread. Rather, we submit ourselves to authorities because we know it's right. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. It's the same idea. God's established earthly authorities for us to obey. And that can be a delight or it can be a refusal. I remember meeting a young man. Um, this is a couple years ago. We are at another church. And he talked about how he's wanting to go to seminary. He wants to be a pastor someday. And uh, so he just kind of was following his parents and following his pastor and basically said, this is the path I want to take. And he made the comment to me, this is like an 18-year-old boy. And I was so encouraged by it. He says, you know, that when you just listen to your authorities and follow and do what they say, it just goes better for you. <laughs> like, exactly. And he had this heart and this passion just to kind of submit himself in a, in a sweetness and a gentleness I was super encouraged by that just says, that's right to do. I'm going to follow and God has given us these authorities to obey, right? When we, we follow the Lord, this is, this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. The commandments aren't burdensome because we just delight in that. And that's a conscience sake. It's, it's right to submit to authorities. God's telling us that. It's a little bit like what Paul told the bondservants in Colossians 3.23. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. You know, there are those employees who, um, who only work when their boss is around, kind of when they, they see them in, in eyesight. It's like the, the man who lost his glasses at work one day. He says, oh, no, now I'm going to be so tired after work. It's like, if you lose your glasses, are you going to be tired after work? He says, well, then I won't be able to see when the boss is here and when the boss isn't here, so I'm going to have to work hard all the time. See, because when the cat's away, the mice will play. But Paul says, no, that's not the way it should be with us. But we should serve with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord for the sake of conscience, not being a man pleaser. We submit because we know it's right, because we have a, a higher calling. And, and truth be known, here's what it is. is it's, it's not just that we have these earthly authorities over us. We see that we have a, a greater authority. So it's almost as if we're seeing beyond our earthly authorities to our heavenly authority. I tried to find a picture of this, but I couldn't quite find it, of, uh, of, uh, of kind of people having some, some struggle with one another. And, and this guy, right, and this guy's having a struggle, and then this guy, like, was, was really submitting then to this guy, because behind this guy was his bigger brother, who's going to bring the enforcement to it. And so that's really what we see. When we see our, our earthly authorities, we ought to see beyond them and see that we have a heavenly authority who's established that earthly authority. And so when the authority comes through the earthly authority, we see it's coming from God and he afflicts our conscience, affects our conscience so that we, we do what is right. It gives us really a higher motive for obeying. But also it gives us a reason to disobey government as well. Because it's our heavenly authority behind the earthly authority, right? When the, when the heavenly authority says something different than the earthly authority, what do we do? We go to the heavenly authority. 
when we know something in the earthly authority is saying something contrary, we should, by the sake of conscience, disobey, yet still submit to our authority for the consequences of our disobedience. And a great illustration, of course, is told in Daniel chapter 3 of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I know that many of you know the story. It would be worthwhile at this point to hear it again. In Daniel chapter 3, verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar makes this statue of gold 60 cubits high. That is 90 feet. You know how tall our auditorium is here? About 30 feet? Maybe 35 feet? So 90, 90 feet tall. It's, that's pretty tall. It's breadth 6 cubits, 9 feet wide. That's about 6 feet. I think it's 7 feet. It's probably how tall I am, right? <laughs> 9 feet wide. He set up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He sets up this big statue. He gathers all his governmental officials and the herald proclaims aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages. Then when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. The decree went out and was made known. And the music was played, and all the people and nations and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. That is, except a few young Jewish men who understood this issue of authority and greater authority. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were their names, and they stood up. I, I love this picture here that's right there on the screen about everyone's bowing down, and you got these three. And then this guy's like, hey, you're supposed to get down. You're supposed to get down. You're supposed to get down. Maybe pulling him. But he's saying, nope, I'm standing up. Of course, that's when you disobey. When Nebuchadnezzar heard about this, he was enraged. These three men were brought before Nebuchadnezzar, who said this. Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. In other words, forgiveness is being granted if you just obey. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? He taunted him. And that's where conscience plays its role. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had been governors in Babylon. They had demonstrated themselves to be submissive to the king of Babylon. They had demonstrated themselves to be capable to execute the will of the king of Babylon. And the king himself appointed them to these positions. That's why I think that he knew their names. But when asked to worship the golden image, their conscience kicked in. It's going too far. Being Jewish followers of the Lord, they knew the first commandment. You shall not have any other gods before me. Do not worship any other gods. Their conscience dictated... That they must refuse to obey the king. So the, bring the, so the king brought them out. Brought them in um, for, their, for their confrontations. Why he brought them in? And they refused. Now, notice how respectful they were. Notice how they explained the reasons. Notice how they accepted the consequences. But they also testified to their faith in God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Here's what it said. Daniel 3.16. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar. We have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, 
and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Just trust in cases where you disobey, in cases of civil disobedience, I just encourage you the same politeness, the same reverence, the same communication, the same acceptance of consequences. They weren't saying, oh, no, no, we're Jewish. We should get out of this. No, they're saying that's the rule of the land. I'll submit to bad rule. I'll submit to the rule. We'll go into the furnace. We're not going to do that. And Nebuchadnezzar was enraged and they're cast into the furnace and Jesus rescued them. They walked out of the fire without any effects. Their hair, their hands, their hair, their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. No smell of fire was upon them. Nebuchadnezzar was won over by the mighty display of God's power. Here's how Daniel 3 continues. Verse 28. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. For there's no other God who is able to rescue in this way. And then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of, of Babylon. This all happened because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego followed their conscience and obeyed the greater authority the Lord. Notice, right, when we disobey our authorities for conscience sake, there's another authority we're obeying for conscience sake as well. As, as Peter said, when standing before the religious council who told them not to preach anymore in the name of Jesus, he says, we must obey God rather than men. Acts 5.29. That is, right, when they contradict. When, when God and men contradict, and when you can show that contradiction, you obey God. If you cannot show that contradiction, if it's a whim or a feeling, you should obey your earthly authorities in everything. See, Jesus said to be my witness in Jerusalem. And the earthly authorities said not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. There it is, contradictory, and they obeyed the greater authority. They did it with respect also. They did it with full acceptance of the consequences of their disobedience. They were flogged when they disobeyed. And I love how Acts 5 41 and 42 describe the process after they were flogged. They left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. And every day and in the temple from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. They rejoiced that they'd been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus and you, in your disobedience, perhaps to some authority, because you have a greater authority, may you find that joy as well. But the principles apply to us, right? When your authorities instruct you to do something that goes against your conscience, because you can find a clear command of God, disobey your earthly authorities for conscience sake. Obey your heavenly authority. Be respectful. Clearly explain. Accept the consequences. Proclaim your hope. Okay? Now, having said that, it's, it's interesting. This has a lot of discussion. But I'm just going to press you to think of one application in your life where this has ever been the case. Where an authority has told you to do something that you can contradict what God says. Now some of you may come from family situations where it's difficult. Maybe some boss is doing some unethical things. That's right there. But may I just suggest that 
there are very few things which this is the case. Our government has never told us to bow down to some idol. We take them up willingly. Our government has not restricted our worship at all. We can gather here freely. After meeting with this policeman, I told you a couple weeks ago, he, he strolled through our parking lot uh, two weeks ago, I think, to our full delight. Hey, wonderful. He's not coming in, checking out what's going on in there. Our government has not made evangelism illegal, like in places like Nepal, other places around the world. Our government's not telling us to murder, steal, or lie. Perhaps, however, if you're a baker and asked to bake a cake for these certain two individuals who are looking to be married and you think that that would be joining in artistic expression of what they are, the government might tell you to do something different. Or maybe you own a large corporation and the country asks you to provide abortifacient drugs, drugs that cause abortion. That's a part of your insurance program that you're giving. Maybe in these two instances, the government is telling us to do something that we just cannot do. But then again, both of these cases struck down by the Supreme Court of the United States. The baker didn't have to bake a cake for these two men. And Hobby Lobby did not have to provide abortifacient drugs. The most famous case of religious liberty, the Supreme Court backed religious liberty. What a grace it is for us to live in such a country. God's been gracious to us to have a country that upholds the religious liberty time and time and time and time again. far different than it was in Rome. Paul wrote, Nero was the emperor of the Roman Empire in these times. He based right there in Rome. And he had no love lost for Christians. He hated Christians. When a fire broke out in Rome, he blamed the Christians. He punished them by setting them afire. Even though he knew that they didn't set the fire. In fact, a lot of tradition history says that it's probably Nero himself who set set a fire just to be able to blame other people. In fact, Nero, imagine this. Nero was the emperor known for taking Christian men and women, covering them with pitch or oil or resin, nailing them to the posts of pine and burning them as torches for amusement to the masses. I like the picture I saw this week in my study. Henrik Simon Rodsky did this work, The Torches of Nero. And you kind of look at this, it just kind of looks like a whole procession, party, what's going on. But you miss the part in the right. This whole party's going on, and there you see Christians. They're around and bound. Tied on a pole, wrapped around. And these guys getting the fire down here, ready to light them a braze. So this whole party that's happening is kind of like a a subset of what's taken on, what's going on. That's Nero, and that's the people to whom Paul was writing 
And he was saying to submit to authorities. Unless, but for conscience sake, unless there's a conscience reason that you can not obey. Of course, he doesn't even mention the conscience reason not to obey here. In Romans 13 and verse 5, the conscience here is, is to do it for the sake or greater cause. Though for the sake of conscience, we might be times we're not. Well, we've seen reasons to submit because of God's wrath and our, our conscience. And, and then he, he transitions here to ways to submit. And, and he just puts forth just a few ways about how it is that we can submit to our governmental authorities. We want, again, just to remind you as Christians, be model citizens for our government. We want to so act and so live when the government looks upon us, hears about us, hears from us, that they look and are, are blessed by us. And that happens in, in many ways. I think about governmental programs. You know, it's a pregnancy care center, totally self-funded. Or whether it's um, a lot of kids programs, safe families, right? Helping the foster system to relieve stress of that. That's all upon the church. Government looks at that favorably. We want to be model citizens. We want to submit to them. We want to help them. And, and some of these examples come in verses 6 and 7 about ways to submit to governmental authorities, I'm sure this is not exhaustive, but, but Paul just brings out some. He says, For because of this you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them, tax to whom taxes are owed, and revenue to whom revenue is owed, and respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. We really see two areas of, of application for submission, right? The first comes in the form of taxes. Paul says, pay them. Verse 7, pay to all what's owed them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue are owed. So taxes and revenue, right? There's, there's, we don't exactly know what the difference is between those. But today we know that our taxes are different. We have income tax, federal tax, state tax, local tax. We have sales tax. We have property tax. We have payroll tax. Paul's just saying, pay your taxes. And maybe some sort of revenue or custom was, was meant by this. But he's just simply saying, pay your taxes. And I say the same thing, just pay your taxes. Government may waste our money. May. (laughs) Government does waste our money. The government does misuse our money. The government spends our money on frivolous things. Spends it unwisely. Yet, because it's been established by God... And needs the finances of his citizens to function, we should pay our taxes. Everett Harrison said it well in his commentary. The man in authority may be unworthy, but the institution is not. So pay your taxes. Right? If you're anything like I am, you hate paying your taxes. You hate filling out your taxes so you can figure out what you pay or what you owe. And, and if you're like me, <laughs> you hate paying your taxes well. Well, join the crowd. The Jews hated paying their taxes as well. They came to Jesus about this tax question. Perhaps you remember. Brought along with them the Herodians. Now the Herodians, Herodians, they're part of the government. They are the ones with the sword. Romans 13 verse whatever it is. uh, Verse 4. The Herodians had the sword. The Jews hated to pay taxes. So they brought these two guys together. And they come to Jesus with intent to trap him and entice him. He says, teacher, oh, Jesus, 
We know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully and do not care about anyone's opinion like this Herodian with a sword or like the Jews who hold all the social power in your, in your public circle. You're not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, Jesus, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Total trap. Because the Jews hated taxes and they thought it wrong to, to give money to the Romans, this foreign army that had, had, had governed over them, their military control of their nation. And any rabbi that would teach we should give to a pagan nation would face the ire of the people of Israel. So if, if Jesus says, yes, the Jews are angry with him. If he says, no, the Herodians are angry with him because they were government officials. And they need the tax. And if you didn't pay the tax, the Herodians would come and arrest you and bring you to jail until you paid the tax. Because you must pay the tax. Jesus, you remember, gives a masterful response. He first rebukes them. Why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? Then he asks for an object lesson. Show me a coin. He then asks the question, whose likeness is on it? We could take a dollar bill as well. Whose likeness is on the dollar bill? Washington. Or Caesar. And then he says that great statement, right? Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. We render to Washington, Washington, D.C., the things that are Washington's, and we render to God the things that are God's. In other words, what, what the government prints and stamps and makes, you just give it back to them. It's theirs. It's what taxes are. They're, they're giving to the government what the government has made. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And in taxes in itself, as much as you might think, as much as I think, lower taxes is always better. I always vote against taxes because once they go up, they never go down. They're always going up and up and up. I'd rather keep that money than give it away, especially if people are going to squander it and use it. But taxes are not evil in and of themselves. In the Old Testament theocracy, when God set it up, taxes were paid. A tithe was given to the Levites. A tithe, that's a tenth. So a tenth was given to the Levites. And a tenth was given to the yearly festivals. And every third year, another tenth was given, which was basically your welfare. 23 and a third percent was the tax rate. That was the, the giving rate, if you will. That's what they, they gave. So if you're talking about tithing, you want to tithe. Tithe is 23 and a third percent. It's what they did. It was a tax in the Old Testament. And taxes are needed for running the government. In Rome as well as in America. Now, one of the things I'm thankful for in our country is that we can determine ourselves how much tax is going to be paid. Those in Rome couldn't do that because it was the Roman government that decided <clears throat> what's being paid. It's the, gov it's the emperor. Military dictatorship. We're not in a dictatorship in America. We can vote those who can lower taxes. And, we, and when people run on that, Platform said, yeah, we'll lower taxes. And they come into office, what do they do? They don't lower taxes. They raise taxes. Like what? But it's on, it's on us. It's on them. It's not holding them accountable. It's like, we can do that. We're voting for people who are raising our taxes. We can get them out. So why don't we pay what we're voting people? We can change this whole thing. What a great government we have. Just encourage you with me to vote no. Let's keep our taxes as low as possible. And Paul says, why do we do this? It's because authorities are ministers of God. Now, I think here he had in mind a little bit about like the Old Testament. 
about giving to the Levites, the ministers of God. Because the word here used for minister in verse 6 is different than the word used for servant in verse 4. But the same idea, right? The, the government is God's servant. He's the one that serves under the hand of God. And here, it's the government being called ministers of God. The word here would be appropriately used of a priest who liturgizes people, who leads people in liturgy, like a, a worship sort of person. So the government is not trying to do that, but Paul's just showing how deep it is that the government are ministers of God. And I think regarding taxes, I think he probably pulled in the whole Old Testament worship sort of organization in order to have the temple work, in order to have the priests work, you needed to give money to them. And so likewise, in order for the government to work, in order for the police to do their duty, and the administration to do their duty, and the, and the offices, and the mayors, and, the, and all the license, all that stuff, you need to give to them so that it all works fine. And I think that's the idea here, the ministers of God that attend to ministering and helping and serving the people. So I just say, pay your taxes. And finally, I just say, Honor your leaders. This is Romans 13, verse 7. Pay to all what is owed them. Tax to whom tax are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect. And honor to whom honor is owed. And here's really where my opening illustration comes to bear. It says that we need to honor our leaders. We live in this divided nation. And we live in in a place where the the, the House of Congress, Democrats and Republicans, and Democrat people and Republican people are like, like shouting and arguing and attacking one another and speaking dispar- disparagingly about our government. And I just exhort you to do this. In your social media, in, in whatever, whatever platform you have, in your conversations at work, certainly set forth what you believe and certainly set forth a, a God perspective on all these things. But I would simply say, In that process, honor your leaders. They are due our honor. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. And as being placed there by God in positions of authority, they deserve our honor. I just challenge you this. Never disrespect our president. I don't care whether you're a Trumper or another Trumper. I, I don't care whether this is Trump or whether it's Obama whatever the name of our next president is, whoever she might be. Never dishonor our president. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. The one who's been placed there by the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Now you may disagree and you may speak against I just say do it respectfully. Even if it gets called fake news, still do it disrespectfully. I mean, do it, do it respectfully. <laughs> do not return evil with evil, right? Return evil with, with good. Because I think that's the call here. First uh, Peter chapter 2 and verse 13 gives a similar sort of idea. He says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Same thing. Subject yourself to every human institution, 
whether it be to the governor, whether it be to Nero as supreme, whether it be to this man who is burning Christians, be subject. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Who's foolish in this photograph? These guys are foolish, set in a a flame, guys who are honoring the king and seeking to do everything they can. Over here, these guys are foolish by not stopping that, but going on with their party. We're to overcome evil with good. Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. 1 Peter 2.17 Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God and honor the emperor. I don't care how bad or how good our president is. It won't. How bad our president will be is it will never reach Nero's length. And if Paul and Peter exhorted to honor Nero, I think we can honor our government officials as well. Because they've been placed there by God and to dishonor them is to dishonor God. And if you're going to find a place to disobey, do it respectfully, accept the consequences, and proclaim your hope. So let's pray. Father, would pray you would find us as people to be subject to our authorities. You've placed them there, established them there for a good. I pray that we would really see that and really understand that and really embrace that. Giving honor where honor is due. Being submissive and paying our taxes. Supporting our, our local governments. God, there, there are things about this government I think here in Rockford that I hate. I hate the gambling that supposedly is for our good and yet takes like two-thirds of every penny that's dropped in those machines go out of our, um, our neighborhood, our city, our context. They go down state to Springfield. They go to the people who make the gaming machines. They just destroy our, um, our culture, our city. They're not good for us, oh Lord. I hate abortion. God, I, I hate how many babies are being destroyed in the womb legally. I, I hate the sin that runs rampant from drunkenness, God, to sexual sin, to drug abuse, and, and the effects that that causes on families. I, I hate those things. God, I, I'm thankful that many city officials hate some of those things as well. And just would pray, God, by your grace, you would help us do good to the city. You would help us in whatever way we can by honoring them and that they might see that we're on their their team to help and support in whatever way we can. God, they might have that testimony of Christians, not as a complaining group of people, but as a people getting behind the causes that they can and helping them with that. But God, ultimately, we know that it's the gospel that people need. The gospel, God, that entraps, that, that frees from the entrapment of these sins that so easily entangle, God, so many people. So I pray in your grace, God, you would help us to know how it is to deal with authorities in our lives, how it is to avoid your wrath, but to know your, your smile, God, and not your frown. 
God, I know these things are complex and hard, and we will talk about them in our small groups, I'm sure. God, guide us in our discussions, we pray in Jesus' name.